got a slide here of Vincent van Gogh, if you're American. If you're English, this is actually Vincent van Gogh. And if you're Dutch, I'm sad to say this is actually Vincent van Gogh. But Vincent was a man who was well acquainted with hopelessness. He had been born into an upper middle class Dutch family. He was known as an eccentric in his day, and today, of course, he's known as one of the greatest painters who ever lived. But when you read through his extensive letters to his best friend and mentor, his brother Theo, you see a very complex figure with a very complex relationship to himself, to others, to his world, and a very complicated relationship with God. He had been born the son of a liberal Protestant pastor, and yet Van Gogh later wrote that his youth was, in his words, austere and cold and sterile. Eventually, Vincent drifted in a more evangelical direction. Um, eventually, he became a missionary, actually, and he served as a pastor to an impoverished community of coal miners in the south of Belgium. But, but Van Gogh saw the wealth and the hypocrisy within the Dutch church. Christians would wear extravagant clothing and jewelry while the people uh, that he served struggled to live and work in positions of extreme poverty and extreme danger. Yet Dutch church leaders reprimanded Vincent for repeatedly identifying too closely with the poor, too closely with these coal miners and their families. Uh, Vincent tried to show support to his impoverished parishioners. He, he for example, gave up the, the very comfortable lodgings the church provided for him in a bakery, and he gave that over to a homeless family, and he himself moved into a straw hut where he slept on a straw mattress. Uh, and yet, because of these squalid living conditions, the church authorities were upset, they were unhappy, and they ultimately dismissed him from ministry for, in their words, undermining the dignity of the priesthood. And so Vincent depleted his savings to continue taking care of these poor miners. And once he was broke, he was forced to leave the people of that tiny community and, and instead work for his brother, Theo, who owned an art gallery. Vincent would live in poverty the rest of his life. He never made any money for selling any of his paintings except for charity. And in his soul, Vincent became disillusioned with the institutional church. In his paintings, and we have another slide here, in his paintings, the windows of churches are always black or dark purple, showing and reflecting the almost complete absence of God's love, which he saw within the institutional church. He felt rejected by his church church that loved wealth and social status, and he also struggled deeply with mental illness. Uh, Vincent suffered from psychotic episodes, he suffered from delusions, and, and, and he worried about his own mental stability. He checked himself into institutions, he, he neglected his physical health, he didn't eat well, he drank too much. One evening, after an altercation with his best friend Gauguin, Vincent found himself assaulted by voices in his head, and he severed off part of his own left ear and spent time in a psychiatric hospital at St. Remy. We have a self-portrait here that he did. Uh, some have suggested schizophrenia, though we can't know, but we do know for certain that he dealt with a condition similar to epilepsy all of his life, and it affected him physically and mentally, and he would go through great periods of the dar darkest and, and, and deepest sorrow and depression. His, 
His condition may have been made worse by his habit of sucking on his paintbrushes, which had lead in them. We don't really know, uh, but, but it may have contributed to drifts into mental delusion in his later years. See, in the eyes of the world, Vincent was a madman, a drunk, a failure, and a bad artist. It was presumably in one of those fits of depression and delusion that Van Gogh is believed to have shot himself in the abdomen, though there are questions over whether it was suicide. He was 37 years old, and the attempt was unsuccessful at first. He stumbled back to the home where he was staying. He remained lucid and conversant in the aftermath, dying several days later from blood loss and from infection. He died in the presence of his best friend and brother, Theo. Can you imagine the heartache, the loneliness, mental illness, physical illness, being publicly shamed and humiliated and mocked, having few friends, delusions. Can you imagine inhabiting a world of tears, a world of suffering, a world filled overflowing with pain? And what can you say in the face of that kind of suffering, the tears and the sorrows of this life, they multiply and and one wonders how we can find hope in this world so filled as it is with despair. We're not going to be turning to a fairy tale this morning, to a religious book. We're going to be turning to a book that is as drenched in blood and tears and sorrow as any on planet Earth, a book that, that pulls no punches, a book that is as honest about the reality of sorrow and pain and suffering and despair, and yet that nevertheless speaks into it a profound hope that humanity desperately needs. I speak of the Christian scriptures, the Bible. We're going to look specifically at the eighth chapter of the letter to the Romans from St. Paul. He wrote it to a congregation that knew suffering well. They knew internal division. They knew what it was like to be hated by one religious group and despised by the larger culture. He, they knew what it was like to have conflict within and conflict without. They knew what it was like to feel conquered by their own sin and conquered by the world and conquered by the devil himself. We too know suffering. Some of you know suffering well. And into this experience of pain, into our wounds and into our tears, Jesus Christ is going to speak. This is the eighth chapter of the epistle to the Romans. I'm going to read the first verse and then jump ahead to verse 31. This is God's very word. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can stand against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, 
we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How does Jesus speak to us here through his apostle? How does he speak into our tears and our suffering and our pain and our sorrow and our struggle? What do we see here? What is he saying? First, Jesus is saying here that you are wanted. Realize how much you were wanted. Consider what the Father willingly gave up in order to have you. How great must he have wanted you in order to give up his own son, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How much he wanted you that he would give up his own son incarnate, second person of the Trinity, of infinite value in order to gain the one thing he wanted more, which is you. Friends, you are wanted. Do you hear that? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. A parent will sacrifice anything for their own child, but God was willing to give up everything in order to have you. You were wanted. You were desired. The Father is willing to give up everything for you. Jesus is saying you were wanted. And, and let's be honest. I mean, I don't know about you, but I think in general, we get in a lot of trouble trying to make ourselves wanted because we all have the reality of shame living inside of us. We're born with that internal voice saying you're inadequate. You have to cover up. You have to hide. If they really saw what you're really like, they wouldn't like you. They would reject you. And so in order to make ourselves wanted to medicate that shame inside of us, we do everything. We, 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 we build the perfect house. We furnish the perfect home, all in the desire to medicate our shame so that we can feel wanted. We work out at the gym. We go on crazy diets. We, we buy expensive clothes in order to make us feel wanted, in order to make us feel desirable, to medicate that shame. You know, we... we we cook the perfect meal. We have everybody over in an effort to make ourselves lovable and desired and wanted. All to overcome our feelings of shame and self-loathing. Jesus, friends, he doesn't promise to make you lovable. Even though we get in a lot of sin trying to make ourselves lovable. He promises that you are loved. And loved is better than lovable. Loved depends on him and not on you measuring up to be lovable. You are wanted. St. Paul is saying you are wanted by God. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us in order to get us. He knows you all the way down and still wants to be in relationship with you, knowing your imperfections, knowing your fear, knowing your shame, knowing your failures, knowing your foibles. He's saying, I want you more than ever. Some of you have heard me tell the story about Keith Jarrett that was on January 24th of 1975 that the world-renowned pianist Keith Jarrett was scheduled to play in front of a, a live audience in the Cologne Opera House, and the concert was going to be recorded live for a new album, but there was a problem. Jarrett had originally requested the use of 
a Bosendorfer 290 Imperial Concert Grand Piano for the performance, but there was some confusion on the part of the Opera House staff, and so instead they found another Bosendorfer piano backstage. It was a much smaller baby grand that they sometimes used for rehearsals, and they placed it on the stage, and according to Vera Brandis, the concert's organizer, this substitute piano was, quote, completely out of tune, the black notes in the middle didn't work, the pedals were stuck, and it was unplayable. Upon arriving at the concert hall, Brandis recalls, Keith played a few notes, and then he stepped back. And then his producer played a few notes, and they didn't say a word. They circled the instrument several times. They tried a few keys, then after a long silence, came to me and said, if you don't get another piano, Keith can't play tonight. Phone calls were made, keys went out, but there was silence. There simply wasn't another piano, and the hall was sold out for that night. Sold out with possibly the worst piano in Cologne. A broken piano, too small by half, that was out of tune with the black keys in the middle. Not working. Jarrett looked at the piano. Everyone knew the show would have to be canceled. With no way to notify ticket holders, people would have to arrive. They would valet their cars. They would go up the doors only to, to have the hassle of being turned away. And while refunds could be issued, you know, but, but, but perhaps the concert could be rescheduled in the future when the right piano could be procured, a, a piano that was actually wanted. Um, you can just imagine as Jarrett looked down at this dreadful little piano that was out of tune and too small and not fit for a concert hall and unworthy of a master and that was missing the black keys in the middle. You can imagine as he looked on it and then said, okay, tonight this little piano and I are going to make music together. He had decided to go ahead with the concert. And with the concert, with the pint-sized piano that, that was broken and out of tune and it was missing the black keys in the middle, you can imagine his producer objecting, but it was clear the decision had been made. Jarrett had chosen to make music with the imperfect piano that was the wrong size, that had keys that were too high or too low, and that was missing what? The black keys in the middle. As the concert began, the lights dimmed and the crowd started to gather and you can almost see the expressions on the faces of music critics as they peered curiously at the stage. What's that baby grand doing up there? It looks horrible. This can't be right. It's undignified. Yet the crowd quieted as the stage lights came up and as Keith Jarrett walked across the stage, he took a bow before taking his seat at the sad little Bosendorfer, and the crowd was hushed. And then fingers came down, and the first notes filled the hall. The minute he played the first note, everybody knew this was going to be magic. The audience looked on in awed silence, and that night's performance began with a simple, chiming series of notes and then quickly gained in complexity, and Jarrett was standing up one minute to play and sitting down the next. He was moaning as he played the little Bosendorfer, writhing as he coaxed sounds out of that little piano that, that, that few knew a piano could make. Jarrett didn't hold back in any way as he pummeled the unplayable piano to produce something that was unique, something that was exquisite, something that transcended the world of Western music up until that night. One music critic noted, 
Mr. Jarrett turned the banal and familiar into something gorgeous and mysterious. The album from the live recording was released in the autumn of 1975 to critical acclaim. It went on to be the best-selling solo album in the history of jazz and the all-time best-selling piano album of all time. Friends, you might be that Bosendorfer. You might be out of tune. You might be broken. You might not be fit for public performance. Maybe you're missing the black keys in the middle. We're no different. But Jesus is on stage, and he's looking at you, and over the protests of others, he is smiling at you, and he's saying, you and I are going to make beautiful music together. I choose you. There will be no other for me. Friends, you are wanted. You are wanted so much that the Father would give up his Son incarnate in order to gain the thing he wanted most. You are wanted, friends. You are wanted, and Jesus is also saying, you are worthy. Ah, Oliver is okay. He's on his way home. No trip to the hospital necessary. Lots of smiles in the parking lot, just so you know. Jesus is here saying you are wanted, but he's also saying something else. He's saying that you, with your sin, with your failures, with your shame, with your struggles, you are worthy of God's blessing. That's the meaning of being justified by God. He says, who's going to bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies, literally who makes us righteous. You know, it's, it's not simply that he forgives our sin. You know, on the cross is what Martin Luther called the great exchange in which I have spent 50 years sinning, you know, loving God with less than all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and not loving my neighbors myself 24-7 for 50 years. And on the cross, what God does is there's a trade. All my sin and all my guilt and all my shame goes to Jesus. And he bears the cross. And he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? Because the Father forsakes him so that he will never, ever, ever forsake me and he will never, ever forsake you because Christ has paid that. But there's the other half of the great exchange in which Christ, who was holy and righteous and always did what pleased the Father, always obeyed the greatest commandment, merited the most righteousness imaginable. When you trust in Jesus, all of his righteousness, all of his worthiness is transferred to him, from him to you. And you became worthy when you believed in Jesus. You became righteous with Christ's righteousness credited or imputed to us because you're united to Jesus who is righteous and therefore his righteousness is credited to you. And it's as if, if, as if you have Jesus' resume and you look at it and it says you fed the 5,000. You raised Lazarus from the dead. You always did what pleased the Father and you look up and it's not Jesus' name on top. It's your name and address and phone number and email and Twitter handle and Instagram account. Because that's all true of you. You have been justified. It is God who justifies. Forgiveness says you can go now, but righteousness says you can come. It's like winning the Congressional Medal of Honor and being ushered into the hallways of power, receiving a, a ticker, ticker taped parade down, down Broadway. You know, it, it, and this means there's no condemnation. This is, friends, I hope you can hear this. This is 200-proof gospel. This is 100% grace. This is Christianity 1.0, the kind in the Bible, the kind that Jesus taught, the kind that doesn't need an upgrade ever. And this means there's no condemnation. Your judgment day has passed from, from the future into the past. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, done. 
you think, Greg, I'm the exception. Well, about every two years, either Keith or I reminds you about our dear brother, Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, how many of you remember Jeffrey Dahmer? How many of you are worried that I'm going to talk about this in front of your children? Okay, we got it. <laughs> Jeffrey Dahmer was a serial killer. He was also known as the Milwaukee cannibal because of what he liked to do with his victims. Um, and between 1978 and 1991, he killed 19 different men. Um, and he actually wasn't trying to, to kill them. He was deeply deranged. And uh, he was uh, terrified that he would be alone all of his life. So what he would do is he would drug other men, and then he would uh, find a way to inject boric acid into their skull cavity uh, in the hope of rendering them um, vegetative so that they would never be able to leave him. And invariably, they didn't make it. And then he couldn't let go of them, and so he'd fix dinner. Um, and, and he was finally caught. In, in 1991 and, and admitted freely to murdering 19 men and he received 15 life terms in February of 1992 um, and after his confession he actually requested a Bible and started reading through the Bible and particularly reading through the Gospels and began to believe that it might be possible that Jesus' blood would be strong enough to clean him to make him forgiven, to make him acceptable to God. And he met with pastors and other Christians in, while in jail, while incarcerated. And in May of 1994, he professed his faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior, trusted Jesus to forgive all of his sins, and was baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he continued for six weeks to study the Bible and to learn more about God and to meditate and to pray. And then six weeks after that, he was beaten to death in the prison shower by a fellow inmate and passed immediately into the presence of God where he was received with joy and celebration as a saint who was holy and worthy on account of Jesus. And the degree to which you want me to qualify that and add footnotes is the degree to which you do not believe the gospel. How is my sin before a holy God any different from his sin? How is your sin before a righteous God any different from Jeffrey Dahmer's sin? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does this mean that Jeffrey Dahmer is never going to have to pay for his sin? Yes, it was already paid for on the cross. And the blood of Jesus as an infinite holy God is powerful enough to wash even my sin, even your sin. Paid in full, finished work of Christ on the cross to save sinners. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. If you have Jesus, you are worthy. You are wanted and you are worthy. And Jesus is also saying that you are secure. This means you have a future that no one can take away from you. What shall we say? If God is for us, who can stand against us? And the answer is nobody. Plenty will try. Paul had lots of opponents, people who wanted him dead. But even their attempts to thwart God's blessings on Paul, God himself used for his own purpose to accomplish those blessings. God is in control. Who can stand against us? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? No. Hardship? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Damage? No. The sword? No. No. 
in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Oh, to be wanted, to be worthy, and to be secure. You know, when I was a very small child, I had a stuffed animal that I actually, hold off on the, the, the slide for a second. I had a stuffed animal, a stuffed Snoopy that I loved to death. I loved the stuffing of that thing quite literally. It was about this big. It, he was worn through almost completely, very little fur left. His neck was about that big around and his head couldn't hold his head up, so it was drooped. And his tail had been sewn back after my brother very intentionally cut his tail off. My mother had sewn it back on with black thread. And so, and he had stuffing. I mean, we went through a lot of polyester fiber fill bags in my household just trying to keep that thing together. And so one year, my grandmother had heard about this. And so she got me a brand new replacement Snoopy. And I have a photo of me right after getting my new replacement Snoopy. Can you get that? You can tell how overjoyed I was. I held on to the new Snoopy long enough to be decent, but it eventually ended up in the trash can out back. I kept my Snoopy, the Snoopy I loved. I didn't care if he was worn through, dirty, with no stuffing in his neck and a stitched up tail. I didn't want a new Snoopy. I wanted my Snoopy because my Snoopy was secure. That was an imposter. And Jesus is saying, you may have a stitched up tail. You may be worn through. You may need a lot of polyester fiber fill just to make it one more day. But you were wanted, you were loved, and you were secure in his love. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, not height, not depth, not anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing in the past, nothing in the future, nothing in heaven, nothing here on earth, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are secure in Jesus. You are wanted, you are worthy, you are secure. Vincent van Gogh was a man who was acquainted with sorrow and with sin and rejection by a church that was focused on wealth and status and social standing rather than focused on the gospel. And he was tormented by manic delusions, by psychotic episodes. He was wounded. He wounded and was wounded in one relationship after another. He was despised. He was hated. He was mocked. He was told he was a terrible artist. And in the eyes of his family and friends and society, Vincent was a failure. And as he pulled away from the institutional liberal Dutch church and as his theology became more mystical, influenced alike by, by evangelical Protestantism in the form of Dwight Moody as well as by strands of Roman Catholic teaching, even when he was making the worst decisions of his life and suffering his worst losses while he was nursing a hangover or treating an STD or getting tied up in an asylum, even in the midst of his seizures and his deepest depression, Vincent never let go. Jesus. He knew there was evil inside him. He knew there was evil outside of him. He knew he needed a redeemer, and he knew his only hope lay outside of himself. He wrote these words. There is much evil in the world and in ourselves, terrible things. And what one does not need to be far advanced in life, to be in fear of much, 
and to feel the need of a firm faith in the life hereafter and to know that without faith in God, one cannot live, one cannot bear it. But with that faith, one can go on for a long time. When Vincent's life took on hope, he gave hope a color, and that color was yellow. Yellow was that color that had been so absent from the windows of the Dutch churches he painted. One notices a gradual increase in the presence of the color yellow in Van Gogh's paintings. Yellow evoked for him hope and warmth and the truth of God's love. You know, it's one of his most famous pieces is Starry Night, if we could get that. And, and in the midst of one of his most depressive periods, when the world was filled with inky blackness, it was nighttime on planet Earth, nighttime in Vincent's life. It was scary. There was not much goodness. It was terrifying. And the churches were filled with darkness. At that time, nevertheless, you see in Starry Night the yellow sun and the yellow swirling stars swirling about in the midst of the darkness as God's love shone through in his creation, even when it seemed to be missing from his church. By the time he had painted the raising of Lazarus, Van Gogh's life had been on something of the mend, and he began to face the truth about himself. We've got that painting as well. Um, based on the text in the Gospels where Jesus weeps at the death of his friend Lazarus, and then in his great love for his friend, he raises Lazarus back to life. Uh, this entire picture is blindingly bathed in yellow, bathed in hope, bathed in life. In fact, if we zero in and focus in on this, you can see uh, if you look at Vincent's, if you look at the face of Lazarus, it's the face of Vincent. He painted himself as Lazarus. Though rejected by his church, he is surrounded by yellow. Though his life has been filled with much sin, much evil, he is receiving God's love in Jesus. Though he knows himself to be mad, though he knows himself to be a failure, though he knows himself to be despised by all, there is one that loves him, and that is Jesus. The love of Jesus blazing and complete, shining forth onto the face of Vincent van Gogh. That blazing yellow is the love of Christ who, who raises this broken sinner from the grave to bring him again to life. Here, shining upon Vincent, is the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Van Gogh reflected on the state of evil and sorrow with these words. He said, sorrow is better than joy, and even in mirth the heart is sad. And it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasts, for by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. Our nature, he wrote, is sorrowful, but for those who have learned and are learning to look at Jesus Christ, there is always reason to rejoice. Let's pray.